Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. We are grateful for Brick Lane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe, and then you'll never miss a video. In cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are, but thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go It's the final word, story time. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon with you for another weekend as we gallop through the history of our sport. Uh, We're recording this particular part after the test match has concluded. We recorded the second part last week. That's the way we have to roll at the moment because it's a complicated time with Jeff in Brisbane, me in Melbourne. We're back together in Adelaide next week. Uh, We're sort of piecing things together as we go. I mentioned Adelaide. That's where our live show is on Tuesday night, the 14th of December with Steve Finn. Please buy a ticket. Please come and join us. Be our friends. Uh, they're 30 bucks a pop. It's cheaper if you're a patron. Patron.com forward slash the final word if you want to get on board there. Tickets generally are at finalwordcricket.com forward slash live. Um, Jeff, I can't wait to get over there. We haven't done one of these live shows in a couple of years. It's not that I'm nervous, but there is a, a certain energy around these shows. And, uh, and yeah, it's going to be wonderful to have uh, a lot of our friends in the room. And as we mentioned on the weekly show, we'll be then back in Melbourne uh, on the 12th of January. We've had to reschedule that due to the extra tests required to get into SA now. But nonetheless, uh, Tuesday will be a belter. I, I am nervous, Adam. I'm nervous. You know, live shows, we don't do them all the time. We are doing one. Stephen Finn's coming. We don't want to look <laughs> bad in front of Stephen Finn. I'm glad that we've got him sort of one test into the ashes rather than maybe four tests in when, you know, he might be even less cheerful than he might be after Brisbane. But I, I think he'll be cheerful. I think we'll be cheerful, but we'll be fueled by nerves. So uh, we'd love to get more people to come along. So if you're in Adelaide, uh, come. But if you're not in Adelaide, but you listen to the show and you know people in Adelaide, let them know. We'll have a really fun night without it costing very much money. And we will get to hang out for a good chat 
about cricket things after the show. We're working on various bits of new material for the live show and uh, we would love to have as many people as possible down there given that we're allowed to have people in the same room as each other now. And tell your friends as well, if you're in Adelaide uh, and you want to come along, tell your mates. Uh, we, you don't need to uh, be a part of our final word family, as it were, to, mm-hmm. uh, to get something out of the live shows. As I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, some, some guys happened upon us uh, in London two years ago, came to the show, and they've been listening and contributing via Patreon ever since. So um, if it's uh, just someone who you think might fancy a conversation like this, uh, do bring them. You don't need to be an existing fan. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, Jeff, um, I think that might be uh, about enough from us from now. I think we should get straight into our work. It's time for a little bit of... Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. It's a game that we play with people on the Patreon page. They support the show. They make the show possible. And some people send through a normal denomination. Those are Julios, not, not nerds. They're straight to the point. But some... Sick and twisted individuals, some cricket freaks like to send through a number with a decimal point, a couple of erratic numbers after the decimal point, and they do so because it relates to cricket in some way, and we have to work out what the number means. For instance, Jody Hicks correspondent John O'Halen is the first cab off the rank this week, $4.80 in Australian currency, 480 is the number, the decimal point could be anywhere, could be gone. 480, what does it mean? And there's a clue, and there's always a clue with Jono. We love solving his numbers. It goes like this. It starts with how Spike's journey ends at the conclusion of the Buffy series. The number is related to Spike's arrival in the Wolfram and Hart office during the beginning of the fifth season of Angel. And Jeff, when I saw this come through, I thought it would be inappropriate for me to have a dart at this when you mm-hmm. are a Buffy lifer. Yes, well, this is why Jono has sent this through because I'm sure I've talked about Buffy the Vampire Slayer on the show before. Cricket relation, I particularly like, I don't know who the author of the cartoon was, but there's a cartoon called Buffy the Umpire Slayer <laughs> um, in which she's stabbing a cricket umpire through the heart with a stump, um, which which is very good, very good areas from, from whoever came up with that. But, okay, so this was one for me. And now I, I need to warn people because this is a podcast, spoiler alert, Spoiler alert, I'm going to talk about the endings of of these two (laughs) series. The finale of Buffy that was released in 2003. If you haven't caught up with it yet, it's probably on you. But I'm aware that there are, you know, people who maybe they were too young, maybe they lived somewhere else, maybe they never came across it, and maybe they're halfway through season six and they're gearing up for season seven. If you don't want to know what happens at the end, fast forward about, I don't know, five minutes, maybe ten minutes. Maybe 10 minutes and work your way back slowly. I mean, it depends how how deep am I going to get into the story of the final episode of Season 7 of Buffy. Well, all right, here we go. Spike is the antagonist who becomes a, a, a colleague over the course of the series. He's a vampire. He's very bad. Then he becomes grudgingly good through a range of, of events that are too complicated to go into here. In the final episode, Angel who has his own spin-off later. Well, at this time, he has his own spin-off, but he shows up for a, a guest spot at the end and they're fighting a big evil power. He's produced an amulet that is extremely powerful if worn by a champion. And the expectation is that Angel will wear it and go into fight alongside Buffy at the end. But no, it gets given to Spike, the, the bad 
character mm. come good because he, he is going to be the champion. And he valiantly sacrifices himself at the end of the episode to make sure that they close the hellmouth forever and that the season can come to its end. Uh, Spike Spike is gone, the fan favourite, the, the troubled soul. He's gone. Now, season five of Angel takes place after the final season of Buffy. And in that season, the main characters have joined up with the evil law firm Wolfram and Hart in the hopes of effecting change from the inside. They're basically every university graduate lawyer who says, yeah, yeah, no, I'll, I'll definitely make it change from the inside. Oh, wow, they are paying me a lot of money. And they open an envelope and an amulet falls out. And lo and behold, emerging from the amulet, Spike resurrected comes back to life in season five of Angel. <laughs> that is the story arc. So this is a resurrection story. I knew this would is, is what it would mean. It was something, and Jono said it was about a career that followed the same arc, a career that was dead and then revived. And if you ever had any doubt about our claim that we don't mess with the ordering of the numbers on this show, this should put that to rest because this is very bad timing, extremely bad timing. <laughs> for this number to be not just on the show but leading the show this week. But that's the order of the list and the order of the list is sacred. And so here we go. Okay. You might have heard of a, a young fellow named Tim Payne. Oh, no. <laughs> who, who had a career that was dead. Dirk Nanis, who bowled up de la gasolina, smashed his fingers. By 2014, Tim Payne was being referred to as a former Australian cricketer. And then, you know, the wheels of fate shift. Peter Neville's too nice. Matthew Wade doesn't make any runs. 2017, they're shit scared about losing the Ashes. Payne's already been to Pakistan with a World Eleven to play some T20s. He's the best pure wicketkeeper in the country. And then he's in. He's in for the Ashes. Makes runs where required at an average of 48 for the series, which is the 480 number that John O'Halen sent through. Along with 26 dismissals, becomes captain a few months later. You know the story from there. The... This analogy did work a couple of months ago before, even a few weeks ago, before everything happened. But the analogy would only work now if Spike dies again after being resurrected, which I don't remember the ending of season five very closely, but I don't think he had a chance to do because they got cut off. They were expecting to make season six and they got unexpectedly cancelled despite good ratings after a, a power struggle with the network. So Spike might have died again had season six been able to run its course, but it didn't. And thus, thus the analogy falls down over the last few weeks, but it was a resurrection. And that is just a beautiful piece of timing from John O'Halen <laughs> to have that on the show this week. Everybody knows Angel is a champion. Uh, thank you, John O'Halen, uh, to start us off today with 480. Can't wait to see your next pledge. Um, John has been brilliant at solving the numbers we can't solve over the journey. And Jeff, John has also been pulled out of the hat to win the Brick Lane Slab this week, which means that John is able to have it ferried to him if he sees fit or send it to somebody else in mm -hmm. Australia. It's completely Completely at his discretion, that will come through to him. Well, hopefully not too long. In the, in, the, in the coming days and weeks, and maybe a month or so, he'll receive an email, which will give him the voucher, and so it will go. Jono, 
Thank you for being a great supporter of the show over a long stretch of time. Likewise, Brick Lane Brewing. The good news at the moment, Jeff, is that anybody can get involved in Brick Lane. I'll tell you what, I'm recording this, not to give away too many secrets, but we might have recorded this a little bit before the Brisbane Test Match, and I am currently in Melbourne for that, and thus mm-hmm. tonight I'm going to get the first opportunity to tuck into a Brick Lane. This will be my Brick Lane debut tonight. I'm going to make sure that at wow. some point during the evening I find a pub with Brick Lane and enjoy one off the tap so bricklanebrewing.com you get 15% off between now and Christmas I think it actually goes until December 31 by putting in the offer code MARSH182 Jeff that's because your man Sean Marsh his highest score in test cricket was 182 you're not getting 18.2% off you're getting 15% Mm -hmm. off but at this time of year before Christmas you're not getting you're not getting 15% off beer anywhere so do all of your Christmas beer shopping with our friends at Brick Lane Mm -hmm. who make award winning beers from coast to coast it makes sense because if you were categorising the 182 statistically you might call it a a 150 you know how many 150 (laughs) scores does he have and that is one just don't raise the bat at 15% 15%, no, raise it at 20, you know, that's that's all. Um, I'd also like to note that I, I had a message from Jay Rizzle that came through saying, full credit to Brick Lane in that their light beer is the first one I have genuinely enjoyed. So, you oh, know, great. if you don't like getting on the booze, they've got a, they've got a one percenter, you know, Occupy New York, they've got a one percent <laughs> hazy pale ale. So it's not like a, a gross piss week lager that sort of tastes like stale dry ginger ale or something you know it's actually delicious and you don't have to get plastered well that's a nice idea as well i might try that in my sampling uh, this evening i mentioned last week and we're still finding out the details of this but there'll be a chance to have a brick lane with jeff and me on new year's eve and through the melbourne test match full stop i think yeah as i say haven't quite got the details nailed down yet but if you want to hang out with jeff and i while we record some of our shows in late december there'll be the chance to do so over a bite to eat and a brick lane but details on that soon our second number today jeff is 386 it's a double header We've got a 386 in from Steve Dodkin and from Brian Stratford. Is Brian one of these lucky types that gets promoted up the list because his number's uh-huh. the same as Steve's? Have I read that correctly? That is. So Steve, Steve's a brand newbie, hasn't been on the show before. Brian okay. edited literally in the last three weeks, I think, and was right at the tail end of the list. And, and it can be quite a wait for an edited number. But same number as Steve, double header, gets rolled up. You know, on the red carpet, in the you know, what's what's one of those ridiculous like express check-ins and stuff they have at airports to try to make people feel expensive? <laughs> Ooh, you get to walk up and scan your boarding pass three minutes before everyone else. Well, that's worth it. Losers. Um, yeah. So that's Brian, not a loser. Um, Brian, he's done the right thing. Put in a number and got lucky. Well played, Brian, and thank you, Steve, for being part of the fun. Uh, Steve's came with a clue, which I, it took me a while to get to the bottom of this. His his clue reads one of my boyhood heroes. I remember him for a shot we see less these days because of the slowness of the wickets. And initially I'm thinking maybe hook shot. I'm thinking Brad Williams wore Mm -hmm. test cap number 386. Brad Williams had people hooking a lot. I kind of went down that gully for a while and realised it was was the wrong place to be. The former England captain MJK Smith loved to field under the lid as a short leg before lids were lids. Catching hook shots, I kind of thought, so maybe it was to do with Mike Smith, but and and he did love playing through the leg side famously as well. He, he, um, you know, there was was the posh side, and he thought of the leg side as the manly side, but uh, I don't 
think his his hooking was like iconic either. So I reverted back and and spoke to Steve and said, "Am I even close with the hook?" And he said, "No, you need to make a 180 in your thinking." The magnitude of the 386 owes a lot to the quality of the opposition. And armed with that, that sort of made me thinking, well, who would be the childhood hero who could involve the number 386? And it didn't take long, Jeff, before I landed on Alan Lamb, who was many people's childhood hero. Gutsy as they come, of course, hailed from South Africa. Bit of a trailblazer, really, having come over playing first-class cricket, but he had British parents and went to North Ants, in turn uh, was playing for England by 1982. And by 1984, he was kind of in the team then on the cusp of losing his spot through the winter of 83, 84. He was having a bit of a, a, bit of a, a, a rough run. And the West Indies were coming to town, who were the toughest test in the game at the time at home. And I suppose we know that, uh, that England get pumped 5-0 in that series. Most people would know that didn't go well for David Gower's team. In fact, I'll talk more about David Gower as captain of England uh, later in the show. But Alan Lamb never really gave into that, making centuries in the second, third and fourth tests of that series. 110 at Lords, an even 100 at Leeds, and then an even 100 unbeaten at Old Trafford. They were the three test matches in, in the middle of the series. At Lords, it should have been match-winning as well. A really gutsy effort in the second dig. It got England to 300 for nine when they declared. They set West Indies 344 in about four sessions, but Gordon Greenwich went nuts and made 214 not out in one of the most stunning displays ever at that ground. Certainly one of the most famous modern innings there. So England lost by nine wickets and by yeah. the time they get to, to Headingley, Garner's back with Marshall and holding the bander all back together. And in that first innings, England uh, are really nowhere apart from Alan Lamb, who makes that even century. And then at Old Trafford, they lose by an innings, and that was in no small part due to another Greenwich double ton having the series of his life. But an unbeaten 100 not out, batting at number five. Uh, there was Alan Lamb standing up for England again. Uh, all told, 386 runs in the series. A statement, uh, really, that he would stay in that middle order for a number of years. Six of his 14 test centuries, Jeff, came against the Windies, which is kind of what he's known for now. People think of him as the one England player who was able to resist through that era. He got another century against them at Lords, so a second Lords ton against the Windies in 1988. And his sixth and final century against the Windies was at Bridgetown in 1990, that fabulous series of 89-90 that we've talked about on Storytime in the past. He played 79 test matches, made 4,600 runs at 36 with 14 tons, 89 centuries at first-class level between England and and South Africa primarily, uh, where he made over 32,000 runs between 1972 and 1995. Sadly, as a lot of people listening would know, he's been uh, quite public in the last couple of months about his battle uh, with prostate cancer. He's now 67 uh, years of age, but uh, he's uh, at the moment uh, fighting through that and encouraging men of a certain age to go and get tested and using his own story as an example of why men should do uh, precisely that. And of course, yes, he was the boyhood hero of many, uh, not least Steve Dodkin. Welcome to the patron ranks with number 386. Lovely work. And for Brian Stratford, well, it could be the same thing. It could, that one's also in pounds, so it could be Ellen Lamb's 386. And that's, that's why we do the doubleheaders, because sometimes the answer to one might also be the answer to the other. But uh, some other venturings on 386. 38.6 is currently Jess Jonathan's test bowling average, which is a bit high for her quality, but she's only got to play three times. Missed the most recent one against India. Might get another chance fairly soon against England with the women's ashes at the end of January. 
So um, that, that could change over time. Um, so I started looking at teams that have made 386 because Sri Lanka made it only a couple of weeks ago. Um, Dimuth Karuna Ratna made 147 against the West Indies, fresh out of the pool. Must have just had a dip, <laughs> Dimuth Karuna Ratna, if, you know, to have played that well. That, that's, a, that's a pool adjacent sort of score, right? Yeah, Karuna Ratna having the, the period of his life, really. I think we could track it all back to the pool, Jeff. I think when Karuna Ratna's career started to turn the corner hmm. and the pool. It was in Leeds, wasn't it, when they beat England? The, the two things are directly related. That's what I like to believe anyway. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely... The, the, the smell of chlorine is strong <laughs> on that career turnaround. Uh, it, three, three, 386. It also got made against Sri Lanka uh, much longer ago when South Africa beat them by an innings in Joburg in 2002. So a pretty modest team score with a top score of 75 from Callas and they still won by an innings um, there wouldn't be that many innings victories where no one made 100 uh, that, that's one for Andrew Sampson um, all round bowling group effort from Pollock and Teeny Callas, Andrew Hall uh, and yes. Steve Elworthy who, yes. uh, who did a sexy Ryan Harris debut aged 33 in test cricket and then went on to run the World Cup for the ECB <laughs> that, that was the test match I reckon Jeff, at least the series when they had the stump mics all the way up and you could hear especially Sean Pollock and the brutal mm-hmm. sledging I mean uh, Boucher as well wasn't it Boucher and Pollock who obviously were having a day in, maybe not a day in the dirt if they won that convincingly but where they were just pounding these these Sri Lankan batsmen over and over uh, with everything they could come up with but no one saw fit to turn the stump mics down and that did change things from that point forward the stump mics were only up for the ball and then they were faded down uh, between deliveries so you mm-hmm. didn't get to have a running commentary on you know why someone did something with someone else's mother and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they went down for a while, but they seem to have come up again recently. Um, so so there was that 3.86. Australia made 3.86 against the peak windies um, that you were talking about before with holding Roberts, Croft and Garner at Adelaide in 82. Border made 126 and they still lost comfortably. This was That was the theme of the time. It didn't matter how well you played against them. You know, Viv Richard style, it doesn't matter who you pick. <laughs> and, uh, and 3.86 was also enough for another innings win in 1967 when England hosted India at Lords, which was, it seems like pretty much a practice run for 1971. So in 71, India come to England and win. They have this surprise breakthrough win, but they've got such great spinners. And they're, the main three were playing in 67 as well. So Prasanna, Bishan Beatty and Chandraseka were all playing along with Chandu Borde, who bowled some league spin in the middle order as well. Um, quite the team there. Rusi Surti was in there. Queenslander! Queenslander! <laughs> played for you know, a rare Indian player to have played yep. state cricket in Australia. Farouk Engineer was there. Now, um, of course, online chef Farouk Engineer who was <laughs> who was doing um, online cooking courses with, with the Lord's Taverners. Good work from Farouk. And the team, of course, was led by none other than Mansur Ali Khan Pataudi, the Nawab the second. Nawab number two in the Pataudi ranks. So those were some 386s uh, that teams have made in Test Cricket to add for Brian's consideration. All right, Jeff. Next, we're up to 215 with a couple of numbers that are in USD and another double header, I should say, and two more free hits. Let the good times roll. Uh, the first of those is from Duncan. Duncan Davies, <laughs> welcome to the show. 
with his 215. I'm going to have a go at that, Jeff. I established that it couldn't be a DOB. As soon as I saw 215, I'm like, oh, here we go, 215, that's in my sweet spot. But the problem is is that uh, the 215th Englishman to play Test cricket was Herbert Sutcliffe. It would be a bit rich if I said that he was a dusty old bastard given his extraordinary career. Mm. In the most recent story, in the most recent story time, we actually referred to 215 with Marnus, didn't we? We talked about Marnus's 215 at the Sydney Cricket Ground yep. in 2020. That was the same score as well that his mate Steve Smith collected at Lords in 2015, and the same score that their mate Justin Langer got against New Zealand at Adelaide Oval in 2004. But to move away from Australia, probably the most famous 215 for England. Tell me, and tell me that Marnus doesn't just love that that he's got the same score. As JL and oh, yeah. Smudger, you oh, know, he's probably he's probably got it framed and put on his wall, mate. Baby oil, candles, the, the works. Uh, perhaps the most famous two fifteen for, for England, though. Do, Sorry, one, of the, do <laughs> one of those Channel Nine memorabilia bits with, the, <laughs> yeah, do one of those Channel Nine memorabilia bits with the three faces, you know, and the big teeth, two fifteen faces of two fifteen, you know, sort of half half like the photos blended out and in over the top of each other, movie poster style, you know, Armageddon. Um, Oh, it'll be beautiful. <laughs> With a nice toasted sandwich shoved down the pocket. Right, so yeah. there's, there's, there's Marnus, there's I Smith. I don't want to miss a thing, <laughs> even when I dream of you. Oh, dreams of Steve will never do, because I miss you, baby. <laughs> can I talk about David Gower yet? I'm going to talk about David Gower now. Is that all right? Please. Let's move on. England, 215. Gower's highest score. Gower's highest score. You know how you know it's David Gower's highest score? It's in his Twitter handle, David215Gower, from the fifth test of the 1985 Ashes series that we were talking Mm -hmm. about a couple of months ago at Edgbaston. It was was one of three centuries that Gower made for the series. We just talked about uh, Alan Lamb making three tons against the Windies. Well, a year later, it was Gower... Uh, plundering 732 runs, the sixth most ever for England in an individual series across six test matches, that was. He made 86 at Lords, mm. 166 in the draw at Trent Bridge, 215 at Edgbaston, then 157 at the Oval to finish, which is often uh, thought of as like Gower's most perfect innings, the 157. But the 215 was perhaps his most influential because that's the series when they... They went ahead in the series after a loss at Lords and a couple of draws. They they pushed ahead there to go two one up, I think it was, and they sealed the deal at the Oval the following week. And uh, that was, um, of course, under the leadership of David Gower as well. What's quite interesting statistically about that two fifteen is that he put on three hundred and fifty one for the second wicket with Graham Gooch, and that's the lowest team score four six four that's contained a three hundred and fifty run stand in Test cricket. So a real again sort of Andrew Sampson energy to that. He might have been the man who mm-hmm. edited the Wikipedia page. I read that on. It might have been, you know, if you go through the search history it'll say, edited by um, in Johannesburg like four years ago and it was when Samson uh, may have, <laughs> have realised this. I'm sure he's listening. Love you dearly. Can't wait to see you soon. So yes, it was the decisive test match of that series to put England 2-1 up. It was also the test where both of them uh, I saw this on, on YouTube recently. I'd read about it but never actually seen it, where both of them walked out with England in a most commanding position after Goo and Garrett had, had batted for a day or so and he smashes Craig McDermott straight back over his head first ball for six and does it again two balls later with an even bigger hit when England have just got the foot down and, and they're really punching that Australian bruise remembering of course that 
It's the most depleted Australian team in 85. I mean, they're missing Terry Alderman. Last week we talked about Alderman playing for Kent in 1984. Well, uh, in 1985, he's already committed to be a rebel tourist for the following South African summer, so so he's mm-hmm. not there. Uh, Dirk Wellham, I think, was there, but had already committed to going to South Africa, so he was undermined somewhat. Likewise, Graham Wood. Carl Rackerman and John McGuire were going to be replacement fast bowlers until it emerged. They both signed up to go on the rebel tours too, so it was all a bit of a shambles, really. Very messy time for Australian cricket. Mm. Are you saying that Australian cricket missed those players? Even uh, when I dream of Terry Alderman. <laughs> <laughs> Dreams of Terry Alderman will never do because I miss you, Terry Alderman. <laughs> Ross Emerson's brother-in-law, we learnt recently, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't know Denise, how that came up. Ross and, uh, and Terry, what a... What a trio. Dinner party. Right, so that was David Gower's 11th test century of the 18 he made. Nine of them came against Australia, so half of his test tons were in Ashes contests across 13 years between 1978 and 1991. His final uh, century of those was at, it was at Melbourne, wasn't it, in the summer of 1991. Uh, he led England 32 times. I mentioned before we'd refer to Gower's captaincy. I didn't realise just how grim the overall stats are. He led them 32 times and they won six of those and three of them were in the 85 Ashes um, in various stints. I mean, of course, we know England Oof. cricket. English cricket was a you know a, a volatile beast in the 80s as beautifully documented by Derek Pringle mm. in his autobiography. If you've not read Derek Pringle's book, uh, buy it for yourself for Christmas. Uh, but yes, uh, Gower led at different times between 1982 and 1989, of course, um, 1989 was the 4-0 trouncing. In fact, they only won five times under Gower. I wrote that down wrong. So two other wins in addition to the three in the 85 Ashes. They won 3-1. They also drew 2-2 in India, which was no mean feat when you consider how hard it has been for teams to win uh, in, in that part of the world. I mentioned that like people often look back at 85 as, as Gower's golden summer. Indeed, that's what John Stern, the editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, he wrote his golden summer on Gower and what he was able to achieve in yeah. 1985. He was at his Exquisite best, uh, said Stern in that magazine article. Uh, by the time Gower was done, he'd overtaken uh, Jeff Boycott's mm-hmm. 8,114 test runs, so he became uh, the leading run scorer for England in test match cricket, finished with 8,321 runs at 44. It's still the fifth all-time for England, despite the proliferation of test matches played and, and runs scored. Joe Root overtook him earlier this year, so before then he was sitting in, in position number four. But yes, he's 215 at Edgbaston in the golden summer of 1985, was when it was never better for Lord Gower. I just remembered when when you were getting through the last minute or so of that because you have weird cricket dreams all the time and I I've almost never remember my dreams. I don't know <laughs> why, but I very rarely do. But when you mentioned it, I, I remembered I had a dream last night and I think this is because I've been reading a lot about Stephen Sondheim who died recently, mm. the, the Broadway musical composer, but I had a dream that you and I had been asked to write a stage play with Derek Pringle um, <laughs> that had to be put on on Broadway. <laughs> now, I don't know what the... I can't remember anything else. I have no other details, but I just remember us sitting down with Derek Pringle in a room to start on this script, and I was like, God, this is a big job. This is new for us. We haven't done this before, you know. But we've got Derek Pringle here, so it's going to wear in good Well, hands. you probably want... I mean, he's probably the most... Uh, he, he is he is he is a music geek 
I mean, he knows every record shop in every back alley of every city mm-hmm. that they play cricket in. He's actually back to his like fighting weight at the moment. So I saw Dell at the Cricket Writers Club lunch this year, and he's lost loads of weight through COVID, fit as a fiddle. So maybe they'll push him out to play for Essex next year. Who's to know? But uh, yeah, if we're ever going to write a cricket musical, mm-hmm. we would consult Derek Pringle. So maybe these things line up um, line up pretty well. I don't know. Just yep. a thought. Maybe, maybe your dream. Maybe it should be life imitating nocturnal art. Maybe, so to speak. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe it's maybe it was a premonition, not a not a dream. Now, I was interested too that you mentioned David Gower's um, t- Twitter handle because cricketer Twitter handles can be very bad. I, I've got to say, I cannot stand the the Virat Kohli, the I'm V Kohli thing. It's just like, are you fourteen? Like, surely you can get your name. Surely you've got the clout to go. Hey, Twitter, just give me my name, even if you know someone else with four followers has taken it um, as a fan account. I'm sure. I'm sure you could get it. But even worse than that is when publications like tag the players in instead of just naming them where they're like, oh, remember the day, a great century made by I'm V. Coley. And it's like, no, I don't remember that day because that's not a name. That's a handle. You knobs. Anyway, I, I, I know you, I, I, get I get why they're doing it though. It's like it's the off chance. It's the, it's the off chance that'll be the one day that Virat decides Maybe to they retweet. retweet it. Yeah, that's why they do it. Because uh, and also yeah. the greater but engagement in the it mentions of desperation. Yeah, maybe it does. But I, I see the inherent logic in why they why they are tagging in someone like Coley. I wonder the, the decision making process he goes through to retweet something. I mean, I'm fairly indiscriminate about the things I retweet. In that, you know, some t- some days I might retweet three things. Some weeks I might retweet nothing. It's there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just how I'm feeling at that exact moment. I mean, I know these guys have their social media accounts managed to a certain extent, but Coley still sits in bed fucking around with his phone in the morning. We all do, right? I mean, I wonder, you know, if Coley just decided to retweet some <laughs> random in his comments, what that would do for that random's, uh, you know, just a fan, not, 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 not diminishing mm. said random fan, but some random fan that had um, said something insightful. If he decided to amplify that to 40 million people, how that person's life would change. Maybe mm. we should write a screenplay around that. Yeah. With Derek Pringle. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Theme song by Aerosmith. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jeff. Do you want to, that was the first, that, that was all for that was all for Duncan Davies. Yeah, you better go to Brian Arcane, who's one of our one of our faves, who's now he's now an officially sanctioned umpire in the New York League. I, I see the photos he sends through. He looks a treat in his blue shirt and his uh, Tony Gregg hat. Uh, the umpires in. I think he's still wicket keeping for one of the teams over there. Loves the game. Lives the game. Loves the game. Mm. Expat. Uh, well, he was an expat. He lived in Australia for a while. Now moved back to the states and um, really embraced cricket. It's interesting the way the English language works, that you can be an approved umpire and be a sanctioned umpire. Or if you were kicked out of the game after being disgraced, like, say, a sports betting enthusiast umpire, you would also be a sanctioned umpire. <laughs> um, but one of them means a very different thing to another thing. Yes, mm. Words. yes true enough, true enough. <laughs> Right, so Brian lives in America. He sent us numbers before about the USA team, sent us numbers about Kumar Sangakara. He's a relatively recent convert to cricket. So it could actually be the Steve Smith 215 because I think from memory that was around the time that Brian started to get into cricket. It came just a few weeks after the 199 that Smith made. So, you know, he, he didn't it, it didn't get time for it to become something to bug him that he hadn't got a double because he, he goes on to get one not long afterwards. But that's mm. about the time Brian gets into cricket, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. When he came and visited in 2018, he was, he was pretty new to it. So much so that he wanted to go back and OBO in the Guardian style test matches and cover them entirely that he 
wasn't familiar with. So he wanted to go back and look at the 2005 Ashes, for example, and experience it for the first time through YouTube mm-hmm. and document it as he would if you're watching it for the first time so he's really committed to this and that would just about line up I reckon uh, yeah it's a reasonable first punt yeah a notable innings as well he's batting with Chris Rogers for most of the time who is our guest at our live show coming up with his 173 I think it was without mm-hmm. looking it up and yeah you know knew the ground at Lords very very well Smith eventually out caught reverse sweeping Joe Root's part-time off spin for that 215 and I remember that because I, I mentioned it at Old Trafford I was doing the stumps interview on the radio um, after Smith's double hundred when he got out the same way I said oh it's twice now you've been out reverse sweeping Joe Root in test matches and he immediately shot back yeah well both times I've made 200 so I'm pretty happy with that <laughs> so he, he knew exactly what I was referring to I'm sure he would he'd be the kind of guy who would know every dismissal he's had in test cricket where I went back to eventually for 215 was the last non-big three women's test match that I briefly mentioned with Andrew Nixon on the weekly show just recently was when South Africa played the Netherlands in 2007. So, Jolette Hartenhoff, Adam, was a seamer for Netherlands who, who got... He got thrown in at a relatively young age, as tends to be the way in uh, women's international cricket even now. So her very first list day match was also a one-day international. Her only first-class match in her entire career was that test match. She started playing those list day games, those one-dayers, in 1998 when she was 18 years old. Now, safe to say not hugely skilled with the bat for Netherlands, 18 innings for them, nine runs at an average of 0.75. But she could bowl. She could bowl very well. 37 wickets going at 3.8 and over. Best of three for in a match. So very consistent in taking at least a wicket just about every match that she played for Netherlands. And the test match is maybe her, her finest hour for them. They're outmatched with the bat. They can't really get a score together, but they do a really good job with the ball in the first innings. Bowl out South Africa for 232 to start the test. And after getting on a bit of a roll, Jolette Hartenhoff finishes with four for 62 after the first innings. Bowls a little bit more in the brief second innings, and she finishes up with four wickets and a match cost of 86 runs, which is a career bowling average of 21.5. That is Brian's number. Now, four years later, she's she's interesting beyond this match. Four years later in Arizona, she completes her first small plane solo flight to become a licensed pilot. We enjoy a good licensed pilot playing cricket, sort of a la Usman Khawaja. And and you'll enjoy this particularly, Adam. She plays her first one-dayer against Denmark in 1998. In 1999, when she's 19 years old, she plays another two matches in a series against Sri Lanka. So she plays the first and the second match. In the third match, she's not in the 11, but she's on the scorecard as the listed scorer for the game. (laughs) They're playing this series in Sri Lanka. They must have been short a scorer for some reason or other. And Jolette, age 19, gets popped in and asked to be the scorer. So she'd already done some club scoring and she was good enough to take it over and formally score an international match. So she's an international in two disciplines as player and scorer and just needs to become an umpire like Brian to complete the set. A high achiever, Jolette Hardenhoff. (laughs) What an absolute belter. Jolette, welcome to the family. That's definitely Brian, by the way. Brian loves associate cricket. 
I note that you were talking about that um, that test match that you referred to off the top in 2007 with with Andrew Nixon on the show a couple of weeks ago. That all tallies. Imagine that. Imagine being asked to do the scoring when you're 12th uh, in a game. I mean, it is quite of its time, isn't it, in terms of where women's cricket was then can compare yep. to now. Yep, but it's official. She's uh, She's got the record. She's on the list. So that's the number for Brian Arcane. Next up, Dominic Bowes with 6.52 in Sterling. Uh, in honour of that very last lockdown weekend walk, listening to Nerd Pledge, I've entered a revision, says Dominic. For when it rolls to the top of the list, I'll say this time it has nothing to do with any members of Six and Out. I believe Dom's last pledge was about Richard Chiqui. Dominic says it is one half of a very old record and one that is unlikely to ever be broken. Yes. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm buoyed by the fact that Dom pledged in GBP. I was talking to Dom recently about how bereft we are that there are a lot of people leaving London and Australians who... Often there's this trans... When you live in London, you get quite conditioned to welcoming parties and goodbye parties because it's a transient city. People come for a year or two, then they go home. I know that. I did it myself a, a couple of times for settling there. But I feel like Dom might be in for the long haul, as I sort of am at the moment, given, you know, the whole thing about family and all the rest of it. But the fact that Dom's pledged in GBP makes me think that he might be there drinking beers with me for the long haul in London too, who's to know. And you're right, his previous pledge did relate to Richard Mm -hmm. Chiqui, who was in a video that our friend Dylan Leach, dear friend of the show, has just put out. He did some, for his work, he did some presentation on the history of the Mercantile Mutual Cup and Richard Chiqui, Brad Hodge and uh, and Gavin Robertson uh, were all involved in making that. So um, find Dylan on Twitter. <laughs> he, he popped it out on social media earlier and it was very funny for those of you who enjoy uh, that era of Australian domestic cricket. Speaking of domestic cricket, uh, that's where I'm going to eventually get to on 6.52. Originally... I was looking at records and 6.52, and I happened upon that game where that kid made 1,009, Jeff, uh, a couple of years ago, whatever it was, four, four or five mm-hmm. years ago now, I think it was. We've kind of told that story before, not that it really deserves oh, more it. Than, more than that now, I reckon. Yeah, it was about whatever it was. I think it was maybe 2016 or yeah. around that marker. And at one stage, the kid was 652 not out overnight, which and that was already the record. And then he went on to break the 1,000 mark the next day. Um, it was across two days that so there are a lot of Prana new stories. Dana Wade was his name. Oh, very good. That, that's very, very good for me. I can see here in a in a link. Yes, uh, Pranav Dana Wade uh, was, was the man in question. But he, yeah, he he was on six five two and generated I'll, plenty I'll, of publicity. I'll never forget that name. Okay, what's well, you're, you're better at this stuff than I am. Uh, but no, I thought uh, no, I just don't think Dom's doing that. That's. Um, that's not the kind of record that we want to get too involved in. It's a bullshit record. It's not real. You know, it was done for headlines. We all followed it in. And here we are five years later and, and you still know the kid's name. So I thought Dom's classier than that. Now, we got a follow-up message from Dom saying that it was um, it was probably not the best time for us to be considering this. Indeed, it was a dreadful time for us to be considering uh, this number, which kind of sort of got us, Chef, to Yorkshire, didn't it? So we, we came via 652 oh, being Johnny Besto's test cap, but who, of course, is a Yorkshire, Yorkshire hero, but there's a bit more to it than that. So we've had a Tim Payne number and a Yorkshire number on the same show. <laughs> oh, this is what happens when you're, um, you, know, you have a couple of months lag between the numbers coming in and when they get on the show. Yikes. Yeah, so uh, Yorkshire was founded 
in Sheffield in 1862 at Bramall Lane, where there was an Ashes Test match played in, in 1902. Then they moved to Leeds, Headingley, their current home ground, mm-hmm. in 1902 in a bid to represent the whole county, you know, basing themselves in Leeds, which is the, the biggest city in Yorkshire. Although I must say, not the prettiest, having spent that weekend in York a, a month or so ago. York is absolutely delightful. Can't wait to get there again uh, at some point next year. Alas, Lord Hawk led like a group of rich blokes uh, who put in the money to buy a ground for cricket, rugby, tennis, bowl, cycling, and this owned entity uh, was called Leeds Cricket Football Athletic Company until it wasn't. Uh, in 2005, Yorkshire County Cricket Club bought the whole thing up, which is partly why um, you don't see the link as clear between the rugby ground, which is on the far side of Headingley and the cricket ground, you know, the old football stand. They do um, they do share that stand, but the link isn't quite as clear as it, as it used to be. Now, 652, mm. we can't quite find anything uh, in Lord Hawke's cricket record, but we were kind of wondering whether it might be something to do with 652 quid. That might have been what it cost to buy the playing facilities there at Headingley, or maybe 652 votes to move the club, or something buried even deeper, but uh, this is going to have to be a revisit, because we haven't quite got there, but I reckon we might be close. Yeah, I, I think you're you're right from the cluage that it's going to end up being... It's, it's about we, we sort of know from the correspondence that it's about the decision to move Yorkshire to Leeds, which where there was a there was basically a, a members' revolt of some sort. There was there was unhappiness with the fact that it was in the headquarters was in Sheffield for whatever reason. Um, but how six fifty two relates to moving it to Leeds, uh, I would not have a clue. But. Dominic knows um, and, and can, can put us on the scent. All right, Dom, uh, get back in touch and we'll deal with that on revisits. Uh, the revisits won't come until after the Ashes series. We should flag, by the way, that um, we're into the we're into the part yep. of the summer now when it's going to be impossible for Jeff and myself to, to put out the show up to seven times a week and do the revisits. So we're just going to do story time with you numbers through the series and then once that's come to an end, we'll have a bit more time to do some massive revisit shows like we did in November. Mm -hmm. So we'll come back to that number then. Hi, I'm Isha Gua and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. The next new number, Jeff, is in Great British Pounds. It's 6.14. It's from Nikhil Venkatesh. And, Jeff, it comes with a clue for you. New pledge for a cricketer who was certainly the best of his nation. Now, we were talking about Richard Hadley being uh, the best cricketer of his nation uh, a couple of mm. weeks ago on Storytime. There, there are a few of these players, aren't they? That, like it's, it's, it is clear that Australia's best cricketer is Don Bradman. It is clear that New Zealand's best cricketer is Richard mm-hmm. Hadley. I suppose you could say it is clear that Zimbabwe's greatest cricketer is Andy Flower. It's not quite as clear-cut as that for many other nations. Maybe Kumar Sangakkara with Sri Lanka, but I'll leave that to you. Well, I mean, I think Murali would shade Sangakkara That's true. in terms yep. of greatness for Sri Lanka. But yeah, even in even in that case, even with Murali being you know such a great great, there are one or two others who are at least in the conversation. So certainly, the best of his nation is is tricky. Um, and so, look, I'll, I'll run you through a process of thinking here. Mm-hmm. First of all, uh, this was an edited pledge, so some of those are from longer ago than the new pledges, and this one was changed in April. 
And at that time, James Anderson, coincidentally, had 614 test wickets, mm-hmm. the same number. He's now up to 632. But it could it could have been a reference to Anderson's wicket tally, which is the greatest for England by a long way. He will keep charging on and he'll try to catch us up on, on Patreon again as he keeps adding wickets good to luck. his tally. But good luck, Jimmy. Bring it on. You could make a pretty strong argument these days that he's the best bowler that he's country has produced on once you put together the skill uh, the versatility because it's always funny that people say he's only good in England when he's been so good in the UAE and subcontinent and so on at um, at different times as well and and you combine that with the longevity so the only thing I can't reconcile though is that there's past tense in the clue a cricketer who was certainly the best of his Mm. nation and Jimmy's still going so you can't say that he was. And the same goes for some others. Like Rashid Khan is obviously the best Afghanistan cricketer. Sandeep Lamachain is obviously the mm. best Nepal cricketer. Kane Williamson's obviously the best New Zealand batter, although Hadley would have him shaded as the best New Zealand player. But they're all still current players, so they can't be, you know, it can't be a past tense. Yeah, I think that's right. I didn't see the past tense bit there. I didn't acknowledge it when I was starting uh, earlier when, when referring to a couple of those guys. So, yeah, I think you, you've got this framed up correctly. I'm, I'm interested to see where you go next. Okay, so if it were Kane Williamson, he did make 614 runs in the domestic season in 09-10, which got him picked for the test team when he went to India and made a ton on debut and away he went. But he also made 812 in the previous domestic season. So I think if you were going to put in a big Kane Williamson numbers number. It might be the 812 instead of the 614. So anyway, he's still a current player. So we've got to look at past players who were the best. And yeah, they're the ones you mentioned, Richard Hadley, Andy Flower, Muralitharan and Don Bradman. They're, they're the only ones who I think you can say they're clearly the best, best of the best that their, their country produced. So none of them have a number that I can find in their career stats or in season tallies or that sort of thing. None of them had anything I could find that links to 614. But, but, what about this? The guy who was better than Bradman. When Adam Voges was on 239 not out in Wellington, his live average in test cricket was (laughs) 105.58. That was his 19th test innings, right? So at that point, on 239, Adam Voges could have said, oh, getting some cramps going to come off, you know, Australia's way ahead in the game, doesn't matter. Then he could have walked out in his next innings and gone, oh, I've done a calf, you know, I need to come off, naught, not out. 20 innings, that's the cutoff in the stats books, 20 innings played, test average of 105.58, see you later, pull the pin, retire. That's how he could have done it. He didn't do that. Um, He did something else instead, but he had that opportunity. Uh, So instead, he kept batting when he was on 239, he got dismissed and when he got out that ended the world record sequence for test runs scored without being dismissed and that tally was 614 runs without dismissal was Adam Voges the greatest Australian cricketer quite possibly quite possibly he was it was one of my greatest ever um, moments on Twitter actually when oh, I teed it up I'll be honest with you I had this all ready to go with Crick Info I knew that in Voges innings where he made 60 at Christchurch in the first dig it was like he needed to get to in his 20th innings he needed to reach like 30 or something to guarantee that upon dismissal his average couldn't be any 
lower than 99.97 or an even 100, let's call it. So when the live average hit 100, mm. however it was, I had some framework in my head that meant that there was no yeah. way he could not be better than Bradman. My screen grabs the, the chart from StatsGuru with him sitting atop Bradman in the 20th innings, thus overtaking him. Got the whole thing pumped out and ensured that Crick Info yeah. retweeted it immediately and thus my, my account went bananas for about 12 hours. That's what I remember that for. Sorry, Adam, that I made it about me, but, um, you know, <laughs> we've talked about you plenty. <laughs> you're, I mean, you're right that... It, so what happened was he got out for 60 in that 20th inning. So before he got out, when he was on 60 not out, his average was 102.07. And I think he needed to get up to about 90 in order for it to have stayed above 100 on dismissal. So, you know, had, again, had, uh, he walked right. in, had he decided to retire on 60 not out, he would have had 100 plus average, yeah. but it drops down to 98 or something afterwards um, after he got dismissed. Yeah, what, what it must have been was that when he hit the point in his 20th innings when his average read 100 that must have been how I did it. In any case it was a yeah. it was a fleeting moment yeah. in time uh, he got out and then we stopped talking about it. I think he had an average of 95 at the end of the series and then they went to Sri Lanka and Andrew Donison dearest friend of the show, calculated how many times Voges would need to fail consecutively to have his average fall into the 50s. And that almost happened. He basically went through and said he would need this to happen in Sri Lanka in order to come back home mm. with an average of not 60. And, you know, Voges didn't have a very good tour of Sri Lanka. In fact, he had a dire tour of Sri Lanka. And as we know, two test matches later, um, it was all over with a career average of 61.9 when he was out to um, Maharaj a couple of times in Perth, I reckon, and then got the uh, the ball rearing back towards him from Rabada, wasn't it, in the second dig at Hobart. And it was kind of emblematic of a team that was, that was, that was stuffed at the time time and needed some regeneration and it was pretty easy to point at the bloke who was 37 at the time but uh, let's be happy that it happened uh, for Adam who is absolutely one of the best people in cricket. 61.9 is what he ended up with as a test average one of the best numbers ever very few over 60 um, in the in the officially endorsed 20 plus innings bracket so still one of the best test records uh, that there is one more number to go it is coming in from James it is the Levi's 501 yeah Jeff a, a toughish one to finish on the basis that the number is well it's synonymous with with one thing isn't it 501 is Brian Lara <laughs> and the last time around um, we we for, well for Mark Henderson I went back and looked at it. It was from about February. We actually didn't do Lara. Instead, we, we talked about the uh, the uh, England magnificent victory under Johnny Won't Hit Today, Douglas, in 1911-1912. In Not quite sure how that related to 501, but trust me, it did. Uh, so I was looking through, trying to work out where yeah, based on the clue, England cricket, 501, something that's not really an English event. Well, you'll have to sort of squint at it and bear with me here, but I think I found it. Well, at least I found an option for it anyway. Uh, it's the night when um, Alistair Cook and James Anderson played a game of 501 darts at Ali Pally in the World Championship of 2014 <laughs> near my place. And I must admit, whilst I've seen this on sort of compilations before and, you know, often Jimmy gets asked about it and all the rest of it, I don't think I'd ever watched the clip in its entirety before. It's totally worth it, purely because of the commentary. So they walk out. Jimmy's like a combination of sort of nervous and chuffed when he's walking down the runway there at Ali Pally with all the theatrics <laughs> and the, you know, the, the cheerleaders and, and so on. 
He's got on his shirt the swinger, because, of course, when you're playing um, professional darts, you have to have a nickname. He's got the swinger on his shirt. Mm-hmm. And then Cookie walks out to Baby Give It Up, and he's got bed and breakfast on his shirt, which I laughed at quite a lot, you know, the old idea of Alistair Cook checking for bed and breakfast when he's batting. And it sort of said on the screen, you know, <laughs> they had their cricket stats. So Cook had played 109 test matches by that point, and Jimmy had, had played 99. And they said on commentary that Cook had hit a 13 data in the warm-up. I'm like, fuck me. Like, that is, like, right on the level. When you consider they've been, I think it's 42 nine-dart finishes in televised uh, darts since 1984 or something like that, about 20 in the last 10 years. Whenever I'm a bit low at home, I chuck on all the televised nine-dart finishes because that is the most euphoric, you know, sporting event you can just about get. <laughs> it's better than a hole-in-one, I reckon. I, I don't I, – I'm obviously not familiar enough with – is that, like, the – the version of a tent pin bowling perfect game. Yeah, yeah. The, the nine data. It, the, ni- the, the nine dart finish is, is is when you hit. I mean, you can't finish five hundred one quicker than nine darts. So when it happens, right. it's like it's considered. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a perfect game, right? Or a perfect leg. It's like the the nine ball half century. That, you know, that's you, it. You can't make a fifty in fewer than nine balls. That, that's exactly it. So um, when Michael Van Gerwen hit seventeen perfect darts uh, in, I think it was two thousand and seventeen World Championship. Off. And Vish and I said it because he um, he hit a nine data in Blackpool uh, in July, and the commentary goes, "Blackpool in July, London in December." And we last year we we're going to go to Blackpool in July <laughs> and London in December to to mark that didn't quite work out thanks to COVID. Anyway, so yeah, uh, needless to say, they weren't hitting nine data's or anything close to it in this very nervous game of five oh one. Cook, although it must be said looked really good to start with. Hits a 60 off the bat and then the commentary starts piling onto Jimmy saying, oh, you're in early trouble here, son. And then Cook hits 100 with his second up, which, uh, the, and, and, you know, the commentator, he's hit 25 test tons and now he has 100 at Ali Pally. And then they start getting stuck oh, into yeah. Anderson. He's out of his depth. He's no good. Anderson's bowling wides. I assume Jimmy normally plays with his left hand the way that he's going with his right. And then Anderson comes back with a 134. Uh, and then Cookie replies with a 140. Suddenly, like, you know, classic professional athletes on television, yeah, a bit nervous and a bit shaky early on. And they just they just step up for about two minutes. They start playing the house down. Uh, and then once they get to the lower numbers, then it starts to, to fall off again. And at one stage, the commentator says, Jimmy's daughters would be home asking Mummy, why doesn't Daddy hit the big scores like the other guys? And they're just piling into Anderson. <laughs> and then at, at one point with 93 to go, Jimmy hits the bull and just like looks around for it, like acknowledgement from the crowd, like, hey, fuck, how good's this? But the wheels start falling off a little bit when they get, I think, uh, uh, Jimmy misses double 16 to win the match and a bit of a, uh, yeah, from behind. Then Cook misses five darts on double 13, missed all of them. Jimmy missed three mm-hmm. darts on double eight to win it. So all the pressure's on both of them, and Cook finally gets there with double 11. And then in the, in the post-play, the first question to Jimmy, which I thought was a trifle unfair given he nearly snatched the whole thing, was, how did you even qualify for that, James? <laughs> I got really getting stuck into him. <laughs> and he acknowledged that he was shaking the whole time. Cook said he couldn't stop shaking. Then Cook said, my friend said if I hit 100, it would be my first 100 on TV. And I assume that's like a bit of a, a, bit of a reference to the fact that Cook played his whole test career on pay television. However, it doesn't quite work mm-hmm. because the darts, of course, were on Sky as well. So, I mean, I, I don't know why his friends would have been joking around that. That. However, in sort of in keeping um, with the clue there from James about an unusual event in England domestic cricket, it is true to say that it is unusual that cricket cuts through mm-hmm. into other walks of the pop culture or other walks of life generally. But, you know, <laughs> I still get kind of chuffed when watching Wimbledon 
and they'll go, oh, and sitting in the raw box today, there's Stuart Broad. I'm like, hey, they're, 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 they are noticing us in other sports. They've been watching cricket too. Yeah. There was there was a clip on BC that they yeah. put out the other day where it's like Gary Lineker and Paul Scholes and Rio Ferdinand playing cricket on the on the on the football set a couple of years ago, like you know having a proper a proper hit up and like you know Gary Lineker played um, junior county cricket for Leicestershire and I'm like, hey, it's mm. pretty cool. Like guys who are well known and play football like our game too. Isn't this amazing? So very different culturally to Australia, <laughs> um, where, where where the sports omnipresent, whereas in England it is a bit a bit yep. off Broadway sometimes. So on that basis, I think that's peripheral enough to to post it for five oh one for James. Even if it's not right, uh, James, we can come back to it in the revisits next time we, we saddle up for a story time. Even if it's not right, it was a bloody good story, and I was glad to hear it. Um, yeah, it's it's the cricket, the English cricket cultural cringe. It's like the Australian. You remember when we were growing up and how absolutely pumped everyone in Australia would be any time an Australian was in a movie in America? <laughs> like wow! Well, what you're saying, you're wow. saying, you're saying, you're saying that's changed. You're saying that's it's, not still not the way I it think is. It's, well, I think there that there's at least been enough exposure that it's less <laughs> notable. You know, it's less remarkable than it was once yeah. upon a time when yeah. it was when it was all about like holy shit, like Tom Cruise in Rain Man when he mentions Melbourne. You know, you want to fly Qantas? We got to go to Melbourne. That's Melbourne, Australia, and we're all like, yeah, yeah. got to mention. Hey, how about did, 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 when you were growing up? Did, did your parents or your friends or family or whatever when you were going to go see a film? They go, oh, it's an Australian film, though. But it's an Australian film, as if to say, oh, well, you know. Which is totally yeah, unfair when you Bill consider, yeah, when you consider we grew up when um, sort of the golden era of Australian cinema with uh, with the tax break in um, in the sort of late seventies, early eighties, where they were mm. able to make a, a number of films that kind of really made it on the world stage. It's kind of odd to think that in the nineties people still had this view of Australian culture and cinema. But anyway, that's yeah. that's for a whole different podcast, I suspect. But that's probably the great, you know, th- there is that great era, that early nineties of you know the the handful of real epic title, the mirror. Wedding and yeah. Priscilla, Priscilla and these these movies that really took off um, Strictly Ballroom and so on. I remember how much of a big deal it was when Lizzie Gardner, who did the costumes, who got nominated. I think she won the Oscar. She for won the costumes. It. Yeah, on yeah. Priscilla. Yeah. But she she showed up wearing a dress made of gold American Express credit cards, like the entire <laughs> thing. She, she, she'd made the dress herself. Um, there was like several hundred gold Amex cards that she'd stitched together to make this kind of mermaid dress. And it got all the attention. And I remember being like, wow, that's an Australian. Like, <laughs> life is more complex than I thought. This, is, this was a big deal. So, yeah, um, 501s, that's where they take us. And that's where we leave it. Uh, This has been story time for another week. Uh, Before we go, we should encourage you once again to... uh attend our live shows. It'll be the last time we get to pump it up on the podcast before we uh, are at Melbourne on the 13th and Adelaide on the 14th with Chris Rogers and Stephen Finn respectively. Buy your tickets finalworkcricket.com forward slash live. That's it. There's a couple of days to go before we step on stage. If somebody I will put this out there. If somebody makes me a dress made of gold American Express credit cards before then I will wear it. Um, (laughs) So you know if anyone's got any spare time I think you'll need to look it up. I think you need a few hundred. Um, so you might need to, I don't know, get in touch or, or put in some dodgy 
credit card applications or something, but uh, that's that's all fine. People do that all the time. As uh, as Lou Richards might have said on the commentary, as also when we were kids, there's time if they're good enough. <laughs> so if you can hearing this on the on the Saturday and the live shows on the Monday, get to work. Our usual round mm. of thank yous on the final word to Bad Producer Productions for all the work they do for getting this show out time and time again. By now you will have heard a couple of the daily shows. We're doing them every single day of the Ashes series of 2021. 2022. Great to have everyone uh, following along on the podcast feed and YouTube as well. Uh, thanks to Brick Lane Brewing. Um, you can uh, hang out with us at Brick Lane during the Melbourne Test match and on New Year's Eve, as I mentioned before. We'll tell you a bit more about that next week. Get your Brick Lane offer. Marsh 182. 15% off. No better time to, to cash in on that given we're in December where it tends to be the time when people are stocking up uh, on their beer for, for Christmas parties and dinners and, and all the rest of it. And most of all, thank you to everybody who listens and contributes via our Patreon page. I mean, it's really, really cool to have such a thriving beast on Discord as well. I mean, really, it's been it's really taken the whole Patreon thing to the next level. So if you're on the fence and want to support what we do, uh, you can not only uh, get to feel like you've uh, warm and fuzzy for supporting uh, Jeff and my enterprise here, but also you get to talk to other like-minded people on the Discord page. Yes, that's right. We're at about 6.50. We're going to be tussling with Jimmy over the summer. If he has a good one, he, he might threaten us. Let's see, um, but let's try to keep ahead of him. Let's push up. Well, let's. I, I think Murley's on the horizon. I think we should go for 800. It's been story time. I can hear Winnie starting to articulate in the background, Adam, so I think it's time for you to end. I think nap time is over and dad time is about to begin. Sounds good to me. This has been the final word story time. Have a nice weekend. Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. Finalwordcricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at bricklanebrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.